everyone. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Kathy Reisman. I am former columnist for Bitcoin Magazine. I've written about money laundering laws for Vice Motherboard, and I'm editor-in-chief of Sex and the State. I became aware of the problem we're going to talk about today last year after my sex and Bitcoin Twitter list blew up about porn stars losing their bank accounts. A memo from the DOJ indicated that they were being kicked out under pressure from the Department of Justice under a program called Operation Chokepoint. Writing about Bitcoin has revealed to me what a wide-ranging and devastating problem underbanking is. Marginalized groups are already more susceptible to lack of access to ba basic banking services like bill pay, check cashing, and credit. I find it especially galling that the Department of Justice is targeting already vulnerable populations such as adult entertainers. What's even more upsetting is that the people being targeted have committed no crimes other than working in industries the government doesn't like. Today, our brilliant panelists will walk us through how overregulation, especially money laundering laws and the Bank Secrecy Act, plus big data and surveillance, plus selective enforcement, means the government right now is targeting law-abiding but disfavored individuals and groups and why that should concern us all. If you guys are tweeting, if you could use the hashtag CryptoCato, we'd very much appreciate it. Now, I will introduce our panelists. Mark Calabria is the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Before that, he served on the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs and Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies. Ash Scow is a columnist for the Washington Examiner and has written extensively about cryptocurrencies, Washington's obsession with them, and what they can be used for. Her favorite cryptocurrency is Dogecoin. Perry Ann Boring is the founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, the first U.S.-based trade association dedicated to promoting Bitcoin and digital assets to public policymakers. She is also the author of the deceptively named Boring Bitcoin Report. <laughs> I also want to thank Kat Murray from Cato, who put this panel together and got us to South by Southwest Interactive. We're going to start with Mark. Thank you, Kathy. Um, for, for, if you want to associate names and faces, this is us, our names and our faces. Um, my background is trade as an economist, so I'm often told that I should tell more stories and, and use less math and less, less charts. So I'm going to promise you we'll be a few slides in before you see anything that looks like a chart. Uh, but uh, I, I remember from my graduate school days the jokes that the joke that economists would tell themselves to make them feel good. We would say economists do it with models. So keeping in that vein, uh, I want to start my conversation with a story about a model. A uh, young woman moved down from Fairbanks, Alaska to Hollywood to try to make it big uh, in the adult entertainment industry. Like a very responsible young lady, she opened a bank account. She tried to save some money, tried to build her business. Uh, one, thing, one day, uh, Ms. Preston went down to the National City Bank branch in Los Angeles, and the person at the bank told her, Ms. Preston, unfortunately, we're no longer doing business with you if we're going to shut down your account. Uh, she was obviously outraged, and like many of us, she took to her social media. She tweeted about it, and she quickly found out that many of her colleagues within the adult entertainment industry were running into the same thing. They were having their accounts closed simply because of the business they were in. Uh, the story they were getting from the banks was compliance costs, uh, you know, reputational risk, uh, and of course she was not alone. Of course this is in lovely Hollywood, let me take you to the other side of the country on the East Coast. Suburban Maryland, a slightly older but no less ambitious woman, Kat O'Connor, owner of, uh, founder of Tomcat Ammo in suburban Maryland, ran into the same thing, went down to the bank one day to process her payroll account. I was told by the bank, Ms. O'Connor, we're not going to accept your business anymore. 
Uh, you're relying on work that you're in is a high risk of business to us. There's reputational risk to us, uh, and so we're therefore shutting down your account. Uh, like Miss Preston, Miss O'Connor took to her took to her social circle and found out that she wasn't alone. Found out that people uh, in the arms, uh, ammo business, gun business were also finding their accounts closed by banks uh, because of compliance costs. Uh, and of course, these are just two examples. Um, as mentioned by the title, let me, I guess we should say what actually Operation Showpoint is. Uh, Operation Showpoint is the Department of Justice and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Of course, insures uh, your money in your banks, working uh, to essentially raise the compliance costs on banks on certain businesses uh, that they don't necessarily approve of. It's being done under the metric of, well, these are businesses that have a high amount of fraud, a high amount of, uh, of pushback uh, in terms of um, cancel transactions. So for instance, this may not surprise you that a very high percentage uh, of transactions on internet pornography are canceled the next day. So you know, you can think about it, okay, it's a late night, wake up, the next day the wife's not too happy with where I spent the money last night. Cancel that transaction. That actually needs a lot of losses for a bank, and so they often identify this as one of the reasons that you have to give extra scrutiny to an account. And so this was the um, rationale that the Department of Justice used for focusing on certain businesses. Of course, uh, there's also the argument that the DOJ makes that uh, doing business on the bank's part with all these other types of uh, business hurt the reputation of the bank. So essentially, the argument the Department of Justice has put forward is that it's not really harmful to Bank of America's reputation that they took a very big bailout from the taxpayer, but it is harmful that they might be giving somebody an ammo dealer or, or a porn star bank account. Uh, and I'm going to go into this a little bit more as we go along, because of course, if you ask DOJ, why are you doing this, the response to you is, well, we're not doing anything. You know, we're not telling anybody not to do business with anybody. Um, in the strictly sort of, you know, what is the need of its type of argument, they're correct. They're only making it very difficult for the banks to want to do business. And part of this is because the banks want to maintain good relationships with the government, which I'm going to come back to in a moment in a little more detail. Um, okay, as I mentioned, an economist, and I can't let you get out of here with at least a chart. Let's be glad that there's no math. Uh, I want to just quickly kind of give you a thought between when you go in and try to do a transaction, you just think about going down to the 7-Eleven to pick up a six-pack of beer. This is you on the end, the cardholder. On the other end is the merchant. The interesting thing to note here, um, if you're paying with a card, if you're paying with a debit card, if you're paying with some sort of bank account, um, there's no line connecting you and the merchant. What essentially happens, important to remember, is when you go there and swipe your card, you're essentially telling your bank to tell the card processor to tell the merchant's bank to accept the payment. And so what the government has done in terms of trying to figure out how to stop you from having a relationship with this merchant is, it looks for choke points. And of course, the choke points in this example are the payment system. Uh, specifically the credit cards, but also the card issuers, the banks themselves, and so that's how they can choose to decide who you can be able to interact and do business with by limiting your ability to process that transaction. Of course, this doesn't affect cash. You could always just use cash and go around that, uh, but of course, as we've learned a lot of businesses, again, you can think about internet porn, it's kind of hard to do that business as a cash business. Lots of other businesses, certainly you can see guns and ammo selling cash, but of course, it differs across industries, but industries that are online or highly dependent upon some sort of electronic transaction, if they pass through the payment system, that is essentially where the Department of Justice can try to, again, so again choke off that transaction. Um, I want to give you a list, and I apologize for the need for the color spectrum here on the chart. This is actually a chart that was leaked out of an uh, FDIC presentation. I probably would have picked a little different lineup, 
Uh, but it's again, these are the list of high risk merchants that the government told two banks that you need to worry about. Some of these things are clearly illegal pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, those are illegal, those are fraud. Um, there are other things on the list, however, such as pornography, such as payday loans, tobacco sales. Uh, many of these purely legal, purely uh, allowed the states in question. Some of them aren't even, you go back to my, remember my comment about the, trying to control fraud. Well, some of these, yes, there's going to be more likely fraud, and others there's not. Uh, as I mentioned, you might have a high rate of people the next day canceling a transaction for a porn site. As far as I know, I haven't heard of a lot of people bringing back half a pack of cigarettes and saying, well, you know, I didn't really like this brand. So again, you know, these seem to be, um, this seem to be industries that were targeted solely because of disapproval of what they were doing. Uh, and we have certainly, um, to, to think that a House committee did a subpoena of Department of Justice emails that really supported that if you looked at the internal emails between the Department of Justice and FDIC, they really were quite vivid, like, we're going to put these guys out of business, we're going to get these guys. It really was not about what the Department of Justice says it is, which is about controlling fraud. It's about picking certain industries, certain winners and losers that they either approve or do not approve. <coughs> I will emphasize again, as Kathy mentioned, uh, both Ms. Preston, both Ms. O'Connor that I mentioned earlier, their businesses were 100% legal in the states in which they were located. So this is not an issue of them going uh, astray of the law. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that uh, this relies on the cooperation of the banks. And of course, those of you who've had to suffer through a little bit of economics have certainly heard of capture theory of how the industries capture and take over the regulators. What I want to suggest is it kind of goes both ways. We have a system uh, often where government gives benefits to the banks. The most prominent of them is to fail. You want to essentially be bailed out the next time you screw up. You have a very strong incentive to kind of go along with what the government wants. Uh, also, government provides a variety of safety nets, such as deposit insurance, such as discount window. Uh, also, I mean, I've looked through a lot of the settlements on the mortgage side that have happened between the banks and the Department of Justice. I would challenge you to find a pattern there that makes sense. Uh, you know, why uh, Chase gets treated one way, Bank of America gets treated one way. Tremendous amount of discretion from DOJ over who gets sued, how they get sued, what they settle for. And of course, it's hard for me to walk away not thinking that the relationship of that bank with the government does have some influence on essential penalties. And lastly, of course, in banking, uh, lots of barriers to entry. You may not be aware of this, but if I wanted to start a new bank here in Austin, one of the uh, first things that the government would look at the bank regulators would be, does me starting a new bank reduce the profits of existing banks in Austin? And I can be denied an application for a new bank charter solely because it makes existing banks less profitable. So the point being here is essentially you've created a system where the government provides lots of benefits to the banks, and if the banks want to keep those benefits, they essentially have to play along, which is, again is one of the reasons why you see this uh, Operation Trip Point work in such a way. Uh, it's also very high compliance costs. Um, and so let me mention um, for a moment, often some of the requirements uh, include going to the site, going to the actual business site. So for uh, a bank to maintain a check-in account for a porn star or an ammo dealer uh, or any of these other activities, they have to be able to verify that the actual business physical location is real. They have to be able to review uh, the website. In many instances, the DOJ is requiring the bank to be able to access the client list of the merchant. So you could imagine in many instances, uh, for instance, you might not necessarily want to run a porn site advertising that I'm going to turn your name over to DOJ and use my site. It's probably not very good advertising. So as you can imagine, not only are a lot of these compliance costs fairly expensive in terms of the bank and make it unattractive to do business, many of them are just going to scare away people from 
wanting to do business with that bank, and vice versa in terms of business with the merchant. Uh, I want to mention as well, part of this to be fits into a very broad scheme of essentially how lots of your data are being collected through the financial system. Some of this, of course, comes out of the Bank Secrecy Act, the Know Your Customer. There's been long-time data collection under the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. Of course, Dodd-Frank creates a lot of new data collection as well. For instance, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has collected billions of individual credit card transactions. For those of you who are old enough to remember uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, you might also remember a young lady named Monica Lewinsky. One of the interesting things that came out of that story was leaked to the press uh, was when she went down to an actual physical borders, if you can remember when there were actual physical bookstores. Uh, she went, bought a bunch of books. What was leaked to the press was the book she bought and the way they were able to get the information the book she bought was they were able to get her credit card data. And so essentially, anytime you buy something with a credit card, the government has a ability to actually monitor and go after that transaction. Of course, they make all sorts of promises that they are going to do that, but again, having the ability to do that, and I think where we've seen that be abused, to me is particularly concerning. Uh, and so uh, this gives relation to what I want to talk about a little bit, for the, particularly for the constitutional uh, lawyers in the, in the room, for the, or at least the wannabe constitutional lawyers in the room, something called the third party doctrine. Uh, let me mention, this is the basis of law that NSA used with the telecom companies to be able to get your, 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 uh, your phone data. Uh, this was established actually in the banking world. So for those of you who don't care, haven't got your constitution with you, of course, I, I don't go anywhere without my Cato pocket constitution. But for those of you who, who have forgotten your Fourth Amendment rights, let me remind you uh, briefly it's your right to be secure your papers effects against unreasonable search and seizure. Now, unsurprisingly, that should apply to your financial data. So the government cannot come into your house and simply grab your, your checking account data, your financial data. That has been well established. But between two very clever cases under the Bank Secrecy Act, what the government has established is that if the government mandates that a third party, in this case a bank, or more recently with the NSA, the telecom companies, if that third party is required to get your data, and the government then requires that third party to hand the data over to you, boom, they've sidestepped your Fourth Amendment rights altogether. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, yeah, you might be able to put your um, you know, bank statements in a drawer somewhere at home, but the fact is all of that data rests on somebody's server somewhere, and it's how the government is able to get that data and basically go around one of your Fourth Amendment rights uh, by essentially this third-party doctrine. Uh, and so the fact that you have essentially lost ownership of your data once it enters the financial system, to me, is a great concern. I'll say as an aside, these were two very closely decided cases. If somebody wanted to dedicate themselves to an area of Fourth Amendment law that I think is, is winnable and overturnable, uh, I think these are two cases that I would, I would very much emphasize people look at. And <coughs> emphasize this is the basis of law coming out of the Bank Secrecy Act that really was the justification for NSA to do everything it wanted to do with the phone companies. So that leads me kind of to our conclusion. Uh, a lot of the talk about Bitcoin often um, focuses around price stability and competition and other alternatives and whether it's a, a viable way to do remittance and so a number of really great things. One of the points I want to make is I think to me alternative currencies are also a viable way to potentially try to recapture some of our Fourth Amendment rights that we've lost uh, basically through the third party doctrine and the willingness of the banking industry to essentially play along. And to me somewhat the model here uh, that I'll end with is talk a little bit about internet gambling. Uh, so in like 2006, Congress passed the Internet Gambling, uh, Unlawful Internet Gambling Act. Uh, and again, it's one of those instances where the title of the act doesn't actually match the substance because Congress didn't outlaw internet bank gambling in that act. What Congress outlawed was payment system working on behalf of gambling. So basically what Congress said is, 
Visa, MasterCard, banks cannot transact, cannot process transactions for internet gambling. So internet gambling is perfectly legal, it's just that it's illegal for almost any actual bank to process, process this for you. Uh, I'm of the opinion that that is one of the things that helped give birth to Bitcoin for a very long time early in the use of Bitcoin, other than um, some of the speculative use. A lot of the Bitcoin use was internet gambling because it was a way to go around essentially the prohibitions of the 2006 Act. Uh, and again, it's important to remember that nothing in that made internet gambling illegal. And so again, you can sort of develop some sort of alternatives where we can go around the traditional banking system to be able to do business uh, with those who we want. Of course, there are going to have to be uh, some solutions, uh, and I think you have to look at the things that are truly illegal, and those things, of course, have to be gone after and dealt with separately. Uh, but the fact that many things that are, that are perfectly legal or be limited our use through the financial system to me suggests a very big uh, reason to want to embrace third-party payment systems that are distinct from what the government's setting up. We're seeing some of this, of course, uh, you know, Colorado, the biggest issue now after the legalization of marijuana is how do you get a bank account? Many of these are very heavily cash businesses. You can imagine that if you run a business where everybody knows that you close at 9 p.m., say, and you have a whole lot of cash, that you are a target for crime. And of course, this has resulted in a lot of robberies. Uh, and so we've seen recently passed in Colorado the establishment of a cooperative uh, bank. Uh, that will be owned by some of the dispensaries, but even this bank needs access to the Federal Reserve System to be able to process its transactions. So again, to be looking at alternative systems where we can essentially sidestep the commercial banking system and sidestep the oversight of the government can offer an alternative, uh, again, that would bring back some of that choice. So with that, let me hand it over to Ash. presentation was. That was definitely a whole lot of information and uh, charts and technical things. So I'm going to bring it back to the personal toll that this all takes. He touched on it, but I just want to really emphasize that, you know, this isn't even just porn stars and um, uh, ammo dealers. I mean, there are a lot of people that are being affected by this, like a Mr. Steve Strafford. I also want to emphasize that these stories uh, come from my own reporting, but also from places like Vice News, Reason, uh, Bloomberg, and uh, The Daily Signal. So this is Steve Strafford. He's 72 years old, um, owner of uh, Secure Account Services in Lake Havasu City, Arizona. He is a former real estate developer. He provides payment processing services for companies in the debt relief industry. He's got just seven full-time employees. Both Chase and Horizon Community Banks closed his business accounts one right after another, no reason. Now, his company funds, because of the service, the company, the um, industry that he's in, his company funds must be held at a government-insured bank. Without that, he cannot do his business. And so after you know a lot of wrangling, he was able to pin Chase Bank down and find out why they closed his accounts. And they said that it wasn't just him, they had sent letters to hundreds of businesses in similar industries due to these new government regulations. And the bank told him that if they didn't, the feds would be able to audit all of their accounts, which means anybody who had a bank there could be in trouble. Next we have Sandra Perry who is clearly not ready for her picture taken, but whatever. 
She's uh, 72 years old, she's Cash Express in Las Vegas, Nevada. She's a stage four cancer survivor, and she has to push back her retirement now because she uh, can't have, she can't pass on her business. She opened a, a new branch in Mesquite, Nevada, and uh, she couldn't find a bank to actually take her account out there, so she now has to basically run both businesses out of Las Vegas. So she has to drive 80 miles to Las Vegas to do the business for her Mesquite, Nevada branch. Um, her business, they do auto title and storefront cash loans. Again, emphasize for the third time, nothing illegal. She has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. She has just two employees. She's now worried about job security, as are there. Uh, three different banks, two different credit unions all told her that her company was just too risky. Brian Brookman owns West Michigan Pond in Grand Haven, Michigan. He's a 10-year veteran of law enforcement. He joined the Army after 9-11. He's been married to the same woman for six years, family man, started a private security agency after he left the military. Last year, he sold that business to start a pawn shop. At the same time, he was selling firearms, but he let his license for that lapse because there was just way too much paperwork. Government already makes it difficult enough to buy and sell guns, so he just kind of gave that up. So he doesn't even sell guns anymore. Just a pawn shop, which does deal in some rare coins. But he opened an account with Chase for his pawn shop. Two weeks later, closed without warning. Only his business account was deleted. He his personal accounts, still totally fine there. But after he finally got them to say what it was, um, he thought that maybe it was due to his sale of vintage coins. So he had to open an account at a different bank. He managed to do that, but then shortly after that, his PayPal account, which uh, you know Mark didn't even get into, it's not just the banks, but PayPal as well, had an issue because of new IRS regulations, all kind of in line with this Operation Choke Point. And of course, these are all businesses that you might not frequent, so let's go back to porn. Um, Tegan Presley, 29, she used to be a porn star, now she is just a stripper. Again, legal. But uh, she received a letter from Chase Bank saying her and her husband's accounts were being closed due to high risk. The bank told her husband it was because she was a porn star and she's not even one anymore. So at this point, it's looking like it doesn't matter if you stop doing what the bank doesn't like, you're branded for life. I mean, that's it. I mean, even if she weren't a stripper, I mean, that former porn star is what did it for her. So to kind of bring this to segue for um, Harry Ann is uh, another porn star, Angela White, who, um, went on Reddit last year to the Dogecoin forums asking if anybody could help her uh, set up a Dogecoin payment for her porn site. Now she lives in Australia, so um, I actually interviewed her, that's why I'm including her, but you can see her reasoning kind of becoming the reason that a lot of these different porn sites end up taking Bitcoin or any other um, digital currency because 
it's going to be easier if you can't open a bank account then you know it's it's an, it's an alternative to doing so so she um I mean, and the added benefit, obviously, of uh, moving to uh, digital currencies for porn sites and, and other things like that is um, that, according to Angela White, quote, cryptocurrencies offer more anonymity and eliminate the need to collect personal information from the consumer. This makes consumers feel more comfortable and also removes a subscription paper trail on a joint credit card statement. So you get the added benefit of kind of getting around operations to a point, at least for now, and you also get the anonymity. Now, I also want to, to talk about how, you know, you look at these organizations and you're saying, you know what, I'm not a porn star, I don't have a cash business, uh, payment processing business, I don't have a pawn shop, I don't sell guns. But if you go back to this list, this gets a whole lot of people. I mean, and not to mention that this could be updated under a future administration. I mean, ammunition sales, drug paraphernalia, as Mark mentioned, you know, in Colorado they decide they don't want marijuana dispensaries, they want to choke them out, and that could be possible. Um, if you also look at uh, racist materials, well, who's going to decide what's racist? A uh, future administration can say something that a reasonable person would think is racist is not, or vice versa. And again, tobacco sales, absolutely nothing illegal about that whatsoever. And this can be added. So if you're thinking, all right, well, this is under the Obama administration, this all kind of makes sense. Think about the surveillance equipment one as well. I mean, alarm system or, you know, uh, any kind of other, you know, a, a tape recorder for a reporter, honestly, would fall under that. But think about if a future Republican president gets in there and decides that, you know, I'm going to add abortion clinics to this and then chokes them out and is a way to get around the law in order to uh, push an agenda. So, I mean, anyone could really get caught up on, in this, and even anyone in this room, I mean, say you have a crazy right-wing uncle that, like, dies and leaves you a gun. You don't want it, so you want to get rid of it. You sell it to somebody, you give it, you try to go the legal way, well, now you're a gun dealer, you know? I mean, you're branded for life. And again, even if it's just one simple thing, they've got that for you forever, as, as we saw with Tegan. So uh, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Marianne. Thanks, Ash. Again, my name is Karen Borg, and I'm the founder and the president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. We're a trade association and a nonprofit organization, and we promote the acceptance and use of digital assets like Bitcoin. Um, and I'm here to tell you about this new technology that has uh, many potential solutions to our financial system. Uh, I want to ask the audience a couple questions. Who here has, who here knows about Bitcoin? Who here was a Bitcoin skeptic? Okay. Fair enough. Good reason. Uh, raise your hand if you own any Bitcoin. I'm not giving this information to the government. <laughs> and raise your hand if you have a bank account. Okay, pretty much everybody. But, believe it or not, 
over 50% of Americans do not have access to the banking system. And according to the World Bank, over 74% of the world's population does not have access to basic financial services. And a big reason for this is because uh, financial laws are now part of defense strategy. And these laws, these rules and regulations, are used uh, to protect the United States uh, global financial empire. And because of that, many people often get excluded, but also in developing countries, a lot of them have the necessary infrastructure to support such type of public services for their people. Bitcoin is the internet of money. Uh, it's a peer-to-peer -peer payment system, which means you don't need a trusted third party to move money back and forth. No longer do you need a bank or a Western Union or a MoneyGram. You can do it yourself. All you have to do is hook up to the open source protocol. Open source means anybody can use it, anyone has access to it, nobody has to pay to use Bitcoin. Yes, there are uh, different types of fees that can be tacked on a different type of advanced services, but this really is meant for uh, people and anyone can use it without being discriminated on based on where you live or where you work or what you do or really anything else. Um, it's not controlled by any country, any government, any company, or any individual. Um, essentially, we're trusting a map-based protocol instead of having to trust uh, a centralized organization like uh, the United States government or uh, an issuer of a private currency. And the blockchain can't talk about Bitcoin without also talking about the blockchain, but this is the protocol that provides the infrastructure for the payment rails. So it's a currency and a payment network, and this is a new leap and uh, financial services innovation which also has the potential to obviate many uh, traditional uh, financial companies. So that's why there's been a lot of pushback by the global financial leaders because they do see this as advanced technology. Um, and at the Chamber, we very much believe that uh, having a Bitcoin strategy today is just as important as having an internet strategy in the early 90s. Uh, financial services companies that don't incorporate this new advanced technology will become the next blockbusters or Barnes and Nobles. Uh, the supply of Bitcoin is fixed at 21 million units. There's 21 million uh, Bitcoin in existence. They're all uh, tracked on the, the decentralized ledger called the blockchain. Um, but this is a, a very important piece because you can't inflate Bitcoin, uh, which many countries have uh, used different monetary policies, inflated the currencies, and that really is devastating to the middle class of those on uh, fixed salaries. So, wake up and smell the blockchain. Is Bitcoin successful? Who's actually using it? Uh, should I buy Bitcoin? Should I use Bitcoin? Can I trust Bitcoin? Well, here's some numbers to give you a little bit of statistics of where the industry currently is. Um, just last year, over $500 million in venture capital was invested into this ecosystem, which is very similar to the types of investments that were made in the early days of the internet. So the venture community absolutely is uh, supporting this ecosystem and investing in this ecosystem and pushing to make this uh, the future. Uh, there's over 100,000 uh, 100, merchants that now accept Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of them will accept the Bitcoin I put in here, although they need to hold it too, which is an important part. Uh, but there's all sorts of payment processing companies like BitPay and Coinbase that can hook anybody up to uh, be a Bitcoin processor uh, and make it easy for merchants to accept Bitcoin. Uh, we're seeing the best and the brightest talents from Google, Facebook, Amazon, Visa, uh, Goldman Sachs, all leaving their current jobs in these bigger 
trusted brands and corporations and jumping into financial services, uh, tech startups. So a great example of this is Blythe Masters. She was, uh, just last week, she just announced that uh, she is starting a crypto finance firm. Uh, and she was, if you haven't heard of Blythe Masters, uh, you can look her up, Google her, her uh, name will come up right away, but she was uh, commodity, uh, head of the commodities division at J.P. Morgan. Uh, we also have Arthur Levitt, who was the uh, longest serving SEC chairman in history, is now on the board of two uh, digital currency companies, including uh, Mir and I think BitPay. Um, and then also on our board at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, we have uh, Jim Newsom, who's the former chairman of the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So we are seeing uh, very trusted, reputable people supporting and jumping into this ecosystem. Uh, transaction volume doubled in the last year. Uh, over 300 ATMs have been deployed in 26 countries. Uh, and GitHub repositories is the measurement of intellectual capital going into this ecosystem. There's about 23,000 currently, which is up five times in the past 12 months. Another point I want to bring out here is that this concept of Bitcoin and digital currencies, it's really nothing new. Uh, it's a natural evolution of the internet. So digital currencies started to be created in the 80s with eGold and DigiCast were some of the first. Uh, Bitcoin is a new one because it's decentralized. It's one of the first peer-to-peer -peer, uh, cryptocurrencies which makes it unique. Uh, but when we talk about e-commerce, oftentimes credit cards are used in e-commerce transactions. Um, and how um, Mark had the graph where uh, the choke point, um, by the time you swipe your credit card to the time a merchant gets paid, that's called the, uh, the interchange. There's about nine steps in that process before you swipe your card and the merchant gets paid. And every step along the way, uh, fees uh, and all sorts of inefficiencies get tacked into this process. The average Bitcoin transaction uh, is you know, just a couple of minutes. Uh, and also, credit cards were created in 1950. The magnetic strip on a credit card is the same technology as a cassette tape. I don't even know if you guys even know what those are anymore. I don't have any anymore. Um, if you think about it, since the 50s, we're using technology created before the internet was even a concept and putting that type of technology on the internet for e-commerce. Uh, and today, over um, credit card hacks and uh, uh, privacy and identity hacks are a multi-billion dollar drain on this economy. Uh, Bitcoin was a, a digital currency that was created specifically for uh, e-commerce with the internet in mind. It's a much safer way to move information over the internet. Uh, this is the key value protocol uh, transfer system. As you can see, uh, the Bitcoin would be the money protocol. And to be frank with you, I couldn't even tell you what all these acronyms mean. Uh, but you can see, uh, since the internet's inception, there have been many different features and added benefits to this technology. Uh, the money protocol is the most recent one. Uh, decentralize everything. So, uh, Bitcoin was the first app on blockchain, much like email was to the internet. Uh, but the blockchain is an agnostic ownership registry, meaning you can transfer anything of value over this protocol. 
including currencies or ownerships to stocks and bonds. For example, Overstock.com, which was the first public company to accept uh, Bitcoin for payment, is uh, under the process of building out their own stock exchange where they're going, their goal is to issue their own shares using blockchain protocol. So not only can you transfer money, you can transfer any type of digital asset uh, from Ownership of uh, ownership titles around cars, lands, your house, anything with identity, including a birth certificate, voting, social security cards, health records. Um, I've heard through my networks that there is uh, an organization that fights human trafficking in India, and they're looking to uh, encrypt uh, birth certificates on the blockchain to fight human trafficking in India. Uh, the reason why this is important today is because if you talk to the Federal Reserve, and uh, Janet Yellen, who is the chairwoman of the Fed, has uh, been quoted saying that the Fed has no jurisdiction over this technology. And uh, a huge reason why they're sort of uh, taking a standoff approach is because the number of Bitcoin transactions don't even register on their charts. But when you take... Um, Visa, credit card, uh, any type of credit card transactions, <clears throat> they're processing, processing trillions of transactions a day. Um, but they're only processing currency transactions. So when you take into account that the future of e-commerce and digital commerce will include transactions of anything of value, we're looking at a much bigger market system. So the potential here is much, much bigger than, uh, than what the, the current systems are currently looking at. Um, enabling control and freedom with Bitcoin. So because of this, Bitcoin is going to change everything for the future of commerce. Uh, and another way we can do this is through mobile phones. And this quote is by the World Bank. Uh, more people on this planet have access to a mobile device than running water. And there are many people in the industry, in the, uh, uh, the digital currency industry, who are building out technologies to bring uh, Bitcoin to mobile phones. Uh, there's a company called BitPesa in Africa that's integrating MPesa, which is the remittance system in Africa, to put uh, blockchain uh, on mobile devices in developing countries. So uh, the future that we see of commerce and, and uh, Bitcoin will have huge benefits in areas of the world where they don't have any access to the financial system. We can bring it through mobile phones. And there's already very important use cases and applications that are starting to emerge. Um, we're starting to see more and more Bitcoin ATMs. In fact, Austin, Texas was one of the first cities in the world to get a Bitcoin ATM. Um, there's three in Austin so far. There's one at the Handlebar, uh, Joe's Coffee Shop on South Congress Avenue, and Central Texas Gun Works. So I encourage you all to go get uh, your first Bitcoin at one of these ATMs. It's a great on-ramp into the ecosystem. But another important part of Bitcoin ATMs is for companies that Ash outlined that cannot get a bank account uh, if you're a pawn shop or you know, possibly um, in uh, the marijuana industry in the states where it's legal now, um, they can't get a bank account. That's a huge uh, issue in the marijuana industry, which is a multi-billion dollar legal industry today in the United States. Um, they're dealing everything in cash, and there's all sorts of security concerns with that. Um, so if you can put a Bitcoin ATM in front of your establishment and tell your customers, take your cash, put it in that machine, bring me uh, the Bitcoin, and we'll you know, accept Bitcoin in our shop here, uh, you can add a lot of uh, security to your operations. 
Uh, the remittance industry is a $500 billion market industry today. Uh, most people use either uh, the postal service or uh, a wire service or a traditional money transmitter like the MoneyGram or Western Union. But the average fee to do remittances is between 9 and 13%. However, people are willing to pay that because it's really the only way to move money overseas. But with Bitcoin, the average transaction cost is less than four cents. So there are huge cost savings to those people who come to the United States, uh, migrant workers who come to work here to send their money back overseas. There's lots of potential cost savings for that. And you better believe that the big remittance companies like Western Union and MoneyGram are looking at this and absolutely <laughs> truly understand the benefits of this. Uh, a lot of them are getting very active in the public policy work that we do at the Chamber in D.C. and are providing comments to government bodies who are asking what's the best way to move forward on the regulatory uh, structure for this. Uh, and microtransactions are now uh, reasonable uh, for one of the first times. Uh, because Bitcoin is a digital currency, you can send less than one cent. You can send a fraction of a cent over the internet. Um, and also for uh, organizations or crowdfunding campaigns who are trying to bring in you know, small dollar amounts, uh, this now makes sense. It wouldn't make sense to do these types of transactions with a credit card. We're all probably familiar when you go into um, a you know, gas station, for example, and they say we won't process a credit card transaction unless you spend at least 10 bucks. Well, using the blockchain protocol, it really doesn't cost very much to send. Uh, small dollar amounts. So while uh, getting someone to donate one dollar might not move the needle, say in a political campaign, uh, but if you can get a million people to give one dollar, that will move the needle. And that can bring more people into uh, the, whatever you're trying to raise money for. But I, I, one thing we're working on in our work is getting uh, more members of Congress onboarded into the system so more people can be involved in the political process. So Bitcoin has many potentials. Um, it's still the very early days, which is important to understand when we're talking about this ecosystem. Um, but it absolutely does provide alternatives to the status quo. Um, and to provide a more inclusive financial system and to protect your security and your privacy. And how Mark mentioned about the Fourth Amendment rights are very much in question here in the United States today. Uh, through my work with the Chamber of Digital Commerce, I've got to learn a lot about the financial services privacy laws. And I guarantee you, if you guys truly understood how closely the banks are monitoring you, you would be appalled. The banks know exactly where you live, where you work, how much money you make, where you shop, where you don't shop. But if you shop somewhere that's off your regular path, they file a SARS on you, a suspicious activity report. And then law enforcement comes and investigates you. We're all being attacked through our rights of privacy today. Uh, and Bitcoin really does provide an alternative means of financial sovereignty and privacy. And uh, with that, I'll give it back to Kathy to leave any question and answer discussions. Hopefully we've got some time for questions, but either way, I want to thank our panelists. You guys did a great job.
we have any questions, if you could line up behind the uh, microphone. And also, if you have a preference for the speaker that you'd like to take a first crack at an answer, uh, if you just let us know. Hi, I'm Brian Coster, Stanley Black and Decker out of Baltimore. Um, having lived in Austin for 13 years and come to the South by Southwest many times, I never thought I'd get a, a constitution here. So, <laughs> in one of the most liberal cities in Texas, so that's great. I applaud you guys for that and I'm encouraged to raise this topic. Um, Bitcoin is very interesting, and I think it, it does have legs, but what's to prevent the government from simply imposing um, regulations just like they have on the banking industry with Bitcoin? I've heard some governments have already banned Bitcoin and other digital currencies. What's going on in that arena, um, and, and do you see the government beginning to extend into regulation in this area? Well, absolutely. This is my one here. There are um, a couple different countries who have essentially banned Bitcoin. Um, yeah, you, if you want to answer, you can come up or I can come up to see if this thing was I think 
my mic is still working, so let me make a, make a couple comments. First, let me thank you about your comment about the Constitution. I like to think there's something in it for everybody, so regardless of it. Politics, uh, you know, for those of you who aren't aware, um, a little more than a third of the text of the Patriot Act is actually financial regulation. And so one of the things the Patriot Act did was it took the framework of the Bank Secrecy Act as it applied to banks and it expanded it to a whole bunch of non-banks. So even if it's dealers in precious coins, gems, all these sorts of things that are non-banks. And so you do have some of that expansion already. Um, you know, and of course one of the purposes of today and one of the purposes of our efforts here is just to get people aware of it. Uh, I've got colleagues that I work with who work on the telecom space and when they started coming to me talking about NSA, I was like, wow, you know, this has been done for decades in the financial services industry, welcome to my world. So part of our effort is to try to raise the, the, the profile of what's actually going on in the financial space. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a slight difference that I, that I touched upon, which is the system is set up in a way to really encourage the banks to go along in a way that the dealers and precious gems and coins aren't because, you know, we're not going to bail out any dealers and precious gems. I mean, there's not the same sort of connection there's not the same sort of, I mean, to me, there's a lack of line between the big banks and the government. Uh, you don't have that with, with the non-banks. And so again, you know, I, I, I'm not completely giving up on trying to, to reform the banking system and fix that, um, but I do think that there's a real threat that Bitcoin gets operated in this way. Uh, efforts of Barry and others to educate people in Capitol Hill are incredibly important. Trying to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, I do think there's gonna have to be an aggressive you know, the, the sort of false stories you hear, for instance, about Silk Road, about things like Hitman and, and child porn and stuff that didn't even go on, um, you know, unfortunately, I, I think it ruins that reputation, but it's important for that community to be very vocal about, you know, we're, we are keeping the bad, bad, bad actors out, things that are clearly illegal, uh, and not just are illegal, but would offend the vast majority of us. Um, I'm certainly very willing to say that if I put that list back up again, I'm sure there's something on the list that offends just one person in the room on everything. But the question is whether it's legal or not. And the question is whether we do we think the banking system should be the policeman or not. And do we think the banking system should essentially function you know, as a service to the rest of us. Uh, so I'll, I'll lastly say, um, you know, obviously with the Patriot Act, this was meant to go after foreign actors. We've seen that, but I'll remind you, you know, Everything we're doing, for instance, to deal with Russia and Ukraine today or sanctions to the banking industry, those are the same things we did over a decade ago with Iran and North Korea. I will leave it up to you to decide whether those things have been effective with Iran and North Korea or not, and whether they're going to be effective with Russia or not. Uh, and so whether we want to make sure that banks, not only U.S. banks, but foreign banks are instruments of U.S. foreign policy, I think is a point we should, we should really debate on. We're saying the... Legal perspective of the Treasury Department is that if a transaction happens in U.S. dollars, even if it happens outside the U.S. between two non-U.S. nationals, the fact that it happens in dollars means that U.S. law covers it. So to me, that's pretty damn expansive. So you know, whether we want to be more respectful of the rest of the world requires us to be a little less um, legally imperialistic in that regard. Okay, nice. Thanks. I'm Lindsay Cole, and I have a question for Carrie Ann. You mentioned about remittances. I was curious, how are people using Bitcoin? I have to admit, I haven't used it yet. I'm going to check it out at the handlebar. Uh, but um, can you convert Bitcoin to cash? Like if somebody sends their parent money in India, can they take that money in India and then convert it to rupees? Or how's that, how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. There's a number of different companies that are innovating with remittance systems. Um, and just depending on the 
different private company that you use. There's all, all types of different services. Uh, after the panel, I'll, I'll give you some information, some additional information. But uh, using Bitcoin, uh, first what you would need to do if you're in the United States and you want to send money overseas, the first step would be you would need to go to an exchange to buy you buy Bitcoin with your US dollar. So you would go through this transfer process. And then once you have the Bitcoin, you can send them to anybody in the world um, who has a Bitcoin address. And all you need is an email address to set up a Bitcoin address. So it's very, very, very easy, very simple to use. And then once they uh, get the Bitcoin in whatever respective uh, country they're in, they would need to go to an exchange, like you did to begin with, and exchange it into what other currency you want. There's also another company called Ripple. It's not Bitcoin, it's its own. They have their own digital currency called XRP, um, and they specialize in this, and uh, they've kind of streamlined that process so you don't have to go through two exchanges. Um, but they're one of the leading uh, remittance uh, companies at the moment. There's a handful of others I can recommend uh, to get you uh, started in checking into it. Um, one statement, three questions. Uh, good news, bad news. I think Bitcoin is about to explode. The good news is there'll be a lot of money in it. Bad news is it'll be the cartel's money. What we're actually finding is that law enforcement is using Bitcoin and blockchain as a tool for uh, to, to track illicit finance. Bitcoin is the most transparent currency in the world. There's a public ledger. I am law enforcement. Great. Um, Can I ask in what division? I run the research and development for emerging technology for the Department of Public Safety for the state of Texas. Okay, great. We run a lab. Technology, the cartels can hire better, faster, leaner, and are quite simply more agile than banks or governments. Um, they're winning this race at a staggering pace. Sure, we would be happy to work with you and with our partners to provide um, added technology benefits that you can use uh, to monitor transactions. Uh, anytime someone uses Bitcoin, there's always an entry and an exit point. I, 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 Well, anyway, we can be a resource to you in that pursuit. We, uh, we absolutely welcome you. By the way, have you all read Stealth of Nations? I haven't yet. But I will, I will make a note of that. Can I have one more question? Hey, um, I'm Natalie. I'm a lawyer in San Francisco working with cryptocurrencies. Uh, I just wanted to get uh, your thoughts on how you feel U.S. regulators will eventually see Bitcoin and uh, digital currency. So you mentioned that SEC has said it's not a security. IRS has said that they view it as property. And the commissioner of the CFTC says that they're looking into whether or not it is covered by that, suggesting like it may be a commodity. Um, and then, of course, it looks and kind of feels like a foreign currency. Things like that. So, 
Um, just kind of what your thoughts are on uh, whether or not you've talked to regulators to see where they think they're going to take it down the line. Absolutely, this is a great point you're making. This is something that I often say, which is why it's so important to have people on the ground in DC to help coordinate this process. We're currently working with over 10 federal agencies just in DC that are either uh, have already grabbed jurisdiction over digital currencies, have some kind of task force or internal working group, or have regulations in the pipeline uh, that will apply to this industry. And you um, often, I mean, you have the risk of conflict of law. Um, some people have even questioned this between what, how the IRS calls it uh, property, but at FinCEN they regulate it like a currency, although they don't call it a currency. So it absolutely is a problem, and that's why we are on the ground, worked on the ground in DC, working with these bodies to bring coordination to this process. Uh, before working um, at the chamber, I worked um, in the House of Representatives, or for a member of the Financial Services Committee, and uh, one thing I've learned in DC is there's a lot of people there, and they don't necessarily talk to each other. So it's important that there's somebody putting together roundtable discussions, having a platform for the different bodies to come together to have these discussions. And if you are an attorney working in this space, we have a lawyers committee uh, specifically for people like yourself to provide thought leaderships on these issues. And uh, we'd like to talk with you more about getting more involved in what we're doing, how you can help out in this pursuit as well. Yeah, let me really add, I mean, as someone who spent seven years in Capitol Hill, let me emphasize that at that point. I mean, I've been pleasantly surprised that it hasn't been worse from the regulatory front, and I think part of that has not only been the efforts of Perry and others, but you've had a few key regulators and legislators who've been open to it, and so I, I think it is important to kind of have people in the Bitcoin community, digital currency community, broadly, since I'm not doing any way to that I think do interact and engage with policymakers to try to get them to understand it. Uh, I think it's crucial to do that sooner rather than later. Uh, I expect certainly some bad stories like anything to happen. There will be some sort of boom bust. There will be you know, some sort of bad uses that end up trying to make the whole community look irresponsible when it's not a representative. So I do think it's important to really be engaged on it sooner rather than later. And I will say I've been pleasantly surprised that um, policymakers have been more open-minded in the conversations that I've had that I would have expected. All right, thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you to our panelists.